Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. August 7. On this date in history, in the year 1782, George Washington creates the Purple Heart. On August 7, 1782, in Newburgh, New York, General George Washington, the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, creates the Badge for Military Merit, a decoration consisting of a purple, heart-shaped piece of silk edged with a narrow binding of silver with the word Merit stitched across the face in silver. The badge was to be presented to soldiers for any singularly meritorious action and permitted its wearer to pass guards and sentinels without challenge. The honoree's name and regiment were also to be inscribed in a Book of Merit. Washington's Purple Heart was awarded to only three known soldiers during the Revolutionary War, Elijah Churchill, William Brown, and Daniel Bissell, Jr. The Book of Merit was lost, and the decoration was largely forgotten until 1927, when General Charles P. Summerall, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, sent an unsuccessful draft bill to Congress to revive the Badge of Military Merit. In 1931, Summerall's successor, General Douglas MacArthur, took up the cause, hoping to reinstate the medal in time for the bicentennial of George Washington's birth. On September 22, 1932, Washington's 200th birthday, the U.S. War Department announced the creation of the Order of the Purple Heart. In addition to aspects of Washington's original design, the new Purple Heart also displays a bust of Washington and his coat of arms. The Order of the Purple Heart, the oldest American military decoration for military merit, is awarded to members of the U.S. Armed Forces who have been killed or wounded in action against an enemy. It is also awarded to soldiers who have suffered maltreatment as prisoners of war. August 8. On this date in history, in the year 1988, the lights go on at Wrigley. On August 8, 1988, the Chicago Cubs host the first night game in the history of Wrigley Field. The first-ever night game in professional baseball took place nearly 60 years earlier, on May 2, 1930, when a Des Moines, Iowa team hosted Wichita for a Western League game. The matchup drew 12,000 people at a time when Des Moines was averaging just 600 fans per game. Evening games soon became popular in the minors, as minor league baseball clubs were routinely folding in the midst of the Great Depression. Adaptable owners found the innovation a key to staying in business. The major leagues, though, took five years to catch up to their small-town counterparts. The first big league night game took place in Cincinnati, Ohio on May 24, 1935, and drew 25,000 fans. The crowd stood by as President Franklin D. Roosevelt 
symbolically switched on the lights from Washington, D.C. To capitalize on their new evening fan base, the Reds played a night game that year against every National League team eight games in total, and despite their lousy record of 68-85, to paid attendance rose 117%. Over the next 13 seasons, the rest of the major league parks followed suit, with one exception, Wrigley Field, which by 1988 was the second oldest ballpark in use after Boston's Fenway Park. For 74 seasons, the Cubs played only day games at home. Finally, on August 8, 1888, the Cubs played the Philadelphia Phillies in the park's first night game. 91-year-old Cubs fan Harry Grossman was chosen to turn on the lights. After counting to three, he flipped the switch and announced, Let there be light. Rick Sutcliffe started the game for the Cubs and gave up a home run to Phil Bradley of the Phillies on his fourth pitch. The Cubs star, second baseman, Ryan Sandberg, answered with a two-run home run in the bottom of the first inning, and with the Cubs leading in the bottom of the fourth inning 3-1, to one, the game was called due to rain. Because the five innings needed for the game to be official were not completed, Wrigley's first night game is officially recorded as a 6-4 to four win over the New York Mets on August 9, 1988. August 9. On this date in history in the year 2010, a JetBlue flight attendant quits job via escape slide. On August 9, 2010, JetBlue flight attendant Stephen Slater quits his job in dramatic style by sliding down his plane's emergency escape chute while the aircraft is stopped near the terminal gate at New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport. Slater, who claimed his actions were prompted by the behavior of a rude passenger, quickly became a media sensation and national folk hero. At the time of the incident, the 38-year-old Slater was a steward on flight 1052 from Pittsburgh to New York City. He contended that when the flight landed, a passenger became abusive toward him during an argument over luggage. Although other passengers on the flight later disputed Slater's account of the passenger's behavior, What happened next was clear. The flight attendant got on the plane's public address system, cursed at the passenger, and said, I've been in this business for 20 years, and that's it. I've had it. I'm done. Afterward, he took two beers from the beverage cart, deployed the emergency exit, and started down the slide. Realizing he'd left his bags on the aircraft, he scrambled back up the slide to retrieve them, before fleeing down the chute again. After leaving the airport terminal, he drove to his home in Queens, New York. Slater, the son of a pilot and a flight attendant, was soon taken into police custody. After posting $2,500 bail, he walked out of jail the next night, an instant celebrity and even a folk hero to stressed-out, overworked Americans. Experiencing his 15 minutes of fame, Slater appeared on national talk shows, was honored with Facebook fan pages, and received offers to do reality TV programs and endorse a variety of products. On October 2010, Slater, facing charges of reckless endangerment, criminal mischief, and criminal trespassing, 
agreed to plead guilty to two counts of attempted criminal mischief and was spared jail time. As part of the deal, he agreed to undergo regular mental health and substance abuse counseling sessions for a year. Additionally, he was required to pay JetBlue $10,000 in restitution to replace the emergency chute. The Queen's District Attorney, Richard Brown, said of the famous flight attendant, My own view of the situation was that Mr. Slater was humiliated by what he perceived as degrading work conditions, and he had a level of rage at the time that was exacerbated, perhaps by alcohol consumption and maybe by other contributing stress factors. Brown also said that he felt Slater recognized the seriousness of his actions. August 10. On this date in history, in the year 1945, Japan accepts Potsdam terms and agrees to unconditional surrender. On August 10, 1945, just a day after the bombing of Nagasaki, Japan submits its acquiescence to the Potsdam Conference terms of unconditional surrender as President Harry S. Truman orders a halt to atomic bombing. Emperor Hirohito, having remained aloof from the daily decisions of prosecuting the war, rubber-stamping the decisions of his war council, including the decision to bomb Pearl Harbor, finally felt compelled to do more. At the behest of two cabinet members, the emperor summoned and presided over a special meeting of the council and implored them to consider accepting the terms of the Potsdam Conference, which meant unconditional surrender. It seems obvious that the nation is no longer able to wage war, and its ability to defend its own shores is doubtful. The council had been split over the surrender terms. Half the members wanted assurances that the emperor would maintain his hereditary and traditional role in a post-war Japan before surrender could be considered. But in light of the bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, Nagasaki on August 9th, and the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, as well as the emperor's own request that the council bear the unbearable, it was agreed Japan would surrender. Tokyo released a message to its ambassadors in Switzerland and Sweden, which was then passed on to the Allies. The message formally accepted the Potsdam Declaration, but included the proviso that said declaration does not compromise any demand which prejudices the prerogatives of His Majesty as sovereign ruler. When the message reached Washington, President Truman, unwilling to inflict any more suffering on the Japanese people, especially on all those kids, ordered a halt to atomic bombing. He also wanted to know whether the stipulation regarding His Majesty was a deal-breaker. Negotiations between Washington and Tokyo ensued. Meanwhile, savage fighting continued between Japan and the Soviet Union in Manchuria. August 11. On this date in history, in the year 1984, Reagan jokes about bombing Russia. On August 11, 1984, President Ronald Reagan makes a joking but controversial off-the-cuff remark about bombing Russia while testing a microphone before a scheduled radio address. While warming up for the speech, Reagan said, My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. Although the press throng and his aides and attendants laughed at the obvious joke, 
the comment unnerved Democratic opposition leaders and those already fearful of the hard-lying posturing Reagan that displayed toward the USSR since assuming office in 1981. Others simply dismissed his remark, which came at a time of heightened tensions between the U.S. and Russia as a moment of poor taste. Reagan's tough anti-communist rhetoric and his policy to increase American defense spending contrasted with the Soviet policies of former Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter, who had tried to cultivate improved relations with Soviet Russia on friendly terms, offering cultural and technology exchanges. In retrospect, many analysts view Reagan's get-tough policies as responsible for scarring the Russians into spending more on their military just to keep pace with American military expenditures, a fact that likely led to the collapse of the Russian economy and, by extension, the country's communist political system. Although Reagan, a former actor, was known for his clever way with words, the bombing Russia joke was considered by many to be an embarrassing political gaffe, not the first of his career. In 1969, while serving as governor of California, Reagan responded to student protesters at the University of California at Berkeley by saying, if there has to be a bloodbath, then let's get it over with. Some of his more witty comments include a comparison between politics and prostitution and the 1980 campaign quip, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job, a depression is when you lose yours, and recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his. Even after an attempted assassination in March 1981, Reagan never lost his sense of humor. The first thing he said to his wife Nancy when she survived at the hospital was, Honey, I forgot to duck. This quote was originally attributed to boxer Jack Dempsey after losing a championship match to Gene Tunney in 1926. Although it is not known what Soviet leaders thought of Reagan's joke, the comment did color some Americans' opinion of Reagan, whose approval rating suffered a slight drop in the aftermath of the incident temporarily boosting the electoral hopes of Democratic presidential hopeful Walter Mondale. Reagan recovered and beat Mondale. He began his second term in 1985. August 12. On this date in history, in the year 1990, the skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus rex is discovered. On August 12, 1990, fossil hunter Susan Hendrickson discovers three huge bones jutting out of a cliff near Faith, South Dakota. They turn out to be part of the largest ever Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton ever discovered, a 65-million-year-old specimen dubbed Sue after its discoverer. Amazingly, Sue's skeleton was over 90% complete, and the bones were extremely well-preserved. Hendrickson's employer, the Black Hills Institute of Geological Research, paid $5,000 to the landowner, Maurice Williams, for the right to excavate the dinosaur skeleton, which was cleaned and transported to the company headquarters in Hill City. The Institute's president, Peter Larson, announced plans to build a nonprofit museum to display Sioux along with other fossils of the Cretaceous period. In 1992, a long legal battle began over Sue. The U.S. Attorney's Office claimed Sue's bones had been seized from federal land and were therefore 
government property. It was eventually found that Williams, a part Native American and member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, had traded his land to the tribe two decades earlier to avoid paying property taxes, and thus his sale of excavation rights to Black Hills had been invalid. In October 1997, Chicago's Field Museum purchased Sioux at public auction at Sotheby's in New York City for $8.36 million, financed in part by the McDonald's and Disney corporations. Sue's skeleton went on display at the Field Museum in May 2000. The tremendous T-Rex skeleton, 13 feet high at the hips and 42 feet long from head to toe with a 2,000-pound skull and 58 teeth, is displayed in a special exhibition space. Sue's extraordinarily well-preserved bones have allowed scientists to determine many things about the life of a T-Rex. They have determined that the carnivorous dinosaur had an incredible sense of smell, as the olfactory bulbs were each bigger than the cerebrum, the thinking part of the brain. In addition, Sue was the first T-Rex skeleton to be discovered with a wishbone, a crucial discovery that provided support for scientists' theory that birds are a type of living dinosaur. August 13. On this date in history, in the year 1981, Reagan signs the Economic Recovery Tax Act. On August 13, 1981, at his California home, Rancho del Cielo, Ronald Reagan signs the Economic Recovery Tax Act, ERTA, a package of tax and budget reductions that set the tone for his administration's trickle-down economic policy. During his campaign for the White House in 1980, Reagan argued on behalf of supply-side economics, the theory of using tax cuts as incentives for individuals and businesses to work and produce goods, supply, rather than as an incentive for consumers to buy goods, demand. In Congress, Representative Jack Kemp, Republican of New York, and Senator Bill Roth, Republican of Delaware, had long supported the supply-side principles behind the IRTA, which would also be known as the Kemp-Roth Act. The bill, which received bipartisan support in Congress, represented a significant change in the course of federal income tax policy, which until then was believed by most people to work best when used to affect demand during times of recession. The IRTA included a 25% reduction in marginal tax rates for individuals, phased in over three years, and indexed for inflation from that point on. The marginal tax rate, or the tax rate on the last dollar earned, was considered more important to economic activity than the average tax rate, total tax paid as a percentage of income earned, as it affected income earned through extra activities such as education, entrepreneurship, or investment. Reducing marginal tax rates, the theory went, would help the economy grow faster through such extra efforts by individuals and businesses. The 1981 Act, combined with another major tax reform act in 1986, cut marginal tax rates on high-income taxpayers from 70% to around 30%, and would be the defining economic legacy of Reagan's presidency. Reagan's tax cuts 
were designed to put maximum emphasis on encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship and creating incentives for the development of venture capital and greater investment in human capital through training and education. The cuts particularly benefited idea industries, such as software or financial services. Fittingly, Reagan's first term saw the advent of the information revolution, including IBM's introduction of its first personal computer and the rise or launch of such tech companies as Intel, Microsoft, Dell, Sun Microsystems, Compaq, and Cisco Systems. Economists have argued to what degree Reagan's economic policy drove the boom of the 1990s, but his tax program undoubtedly set in motion powerful forces of change that would result in both short and long-term economic gains. On the other hand, critics of so-called Reaganomics point out that his tax cuts and the effects of steady economic growth disproportionately benefited the wealthy and vastly increased the gap between the nation's rich and poor. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for August 7 through August 13. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.